If you're ever looking for a great icebreaker question to spark conversation, try asking this one. Ask the people at your your dinner table, um, what's a movie they have watched five times or more? Has to be at least five times, and why? And just listen to what what they have to say. One of my all-time favorites is this one pictured up on the screen. Oh, brother, where art thou? Do we have anybody else watch that more than five times? No, that... (laughs) I, I, it is so funny. Every time I watch it, I just laugh my head off. Um, I love, why? Okay, well, I love the bluegrass soundtrack. Um, Alison Krauss and Union Station is fantastic. The, I like the period piece aspect of it. You know, it's set in Mississippi in the 1930s during the Great Depression. I lived in Mississippi for a few years. If you've seen it, you may remember the opening scene of the movie. There's a line of prisoners in, in a prison chain gang and smashing rocks and singing the blues. And then from the chain gang, the camera pans and you see three prisoners on the run, very, very, um, uh, very conspicuously. You know, they're running across the field quite comically because they're very obvious and they should be seen, but they're not seen. And the three prisoners are, you know, George Clooney, who plays Everett, and then the sidekicks, Pete, Pete Hogwallop and Delmar O'Donnell. And throughout the whole movie, they're on the run. They're prisoners on the run. And they're also in search of treasure. And they're also trying to reconcile Everett's marriage with his wife, all the while trying to reunite him with his prodigiously musically talented children who are singing, you know, throughout the show. And I love it. It's so funny. Prisoners, they, they run when they can. Prisoners, if you give a prisoner an opportunity they're going to pursue their freedom. They're going to run, always, except when they don't. And we've got one of those instances in our passage today, a favorite passage of mine, Acts chapter 16, where we discover prisoners who don't flee when the doors of the prison cell are flung wide open. And that should make you uh, want to know why. Why is that? Acts 16, verses 13 through 34. Again, one of my favorite chapters in Acts because we get these essentially character profiles. Who were the early Christians? Or what was the type of person who became a Christian in those you know, first burgeoning years of the church? Well, we get three great stories taken from the city of Philippi. Philippi, northwest Greece. You can go and see the ruins of Philippi if you make it from Spain to Greece. I doubt you will, but uh, they're, they're there, and we read this, that verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that, at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them 
into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in, and trembling before Paul and Silas, he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in this house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes. Okay, three profiles. Profiles of early Christians. Profile number one, Lydia. Who are the kind of people who become Christians? Well, how about successful businesswomen? Because <laughs> that's what Lydia was. She was a dealer, it says, in purple dye, purple goods. And uh, purple dye back then, you know, it was extracted, of all things, from snails. So it was very expensive, very, very expensive. And so in, in our t- terms today, you'd say, like, she's a high-end fashion retailer, Okay. She's a CEO of of her own fashion company. I think feminism has largely killed off the 1950s Americana idea of like a woman's place is in the home, a woman's place is in uh, the kitchen. Isn't it interesting though, you can go back 2,000 years ago to the Roman Empire and see that like that wasn't the way back then. I mean, even the ancient cultures kind of had rejected that way of thinking. Here you have Lydia, you know, in the fashion industry. She probably owns multiple homes because it says she has a home in her native city of Thyatira and then likely a second home here in the city of Philippi. She travels all over the Roman Empire, verse 13. And on the Sabbath, it says, we went outside to the city gate to the river. We expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Uh, Lydia and these women... They're pro. I don't. It's hard to say. Are they Jews? It, I think elsewhere it says that she's she's a believer in God, a follower of God, uh, a seeker of God. She's maybe a lot like the Ethiopian eunuch who we read about earlier in the Book of Acts, a person who's attracted to Judaism. Uh, clearly, there's not a synagogue in the city of Philippi, and so she and these other seekers are outside, essentially doing an, an outdoor Bible study and, and prayer time. Um, down by the river, seeking, seeking after the divine. And what I find so fascinating about this, this picture, it, it's a snapshot into a man who has been accused by many critics as a chauvinist. The Apostle Paul is thought by 
a lot of people today as a very chauvinistic author, and yet here we see him doing something that like Jewish rabbis just didn't do. Jewish rabbis, they didn't go after the women. I mean, a woman wasn't even allowed to be the disciple of a rabbi. And yet here he is. He finds out that oh, there's a place of prayer down by the river. He goes, he sees, he sees there are women there, and he, ju- he, he pursues them. He pursues the women, and he meets them. So that's to his credit. To Lydia's credit, even though she's an extremely successful businesswoman, she's wealthy, she is willing to, to have a conversation. She's we would say spiritually curious. Um, And it says that God opened Lydia's heart to believe the message, but the reason that even happened is because she was willing to have a conversation down by a river with a Jewish guy that she had never met before. I mean, a a spiritual conversation with a complete stranger, that's something that's almost like entirely off limits in our culture today, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're growing up a generation who are honestly intimidated by face-to-face conversations of, of any sort, right? And then to have a spiritual conversation with someone, um, yeah, I'm struck, by, I'm struck by her curiosity. Perhaps you have watched one of the best shows on television, Ted Lasso, on Apple TV. It follows an American college football coach who was hired to coach a professional English soccer club, uh, Ted Lasso is kind of that s- southern country bumpkin kind of fellow. Uh, he gets hired because the owner wants to sabotage the team, and he knows nothing about soccer, by the way. All he's ever done is coach college football, um, but he ends up being the, uh, the winning coach for the AFC Richmond um, footballers. What, what you love about Ted Lasso is he's so self-effacing, and, and he's a man who... He's always, always um, entering into life thinking that there's something more to be learned. So my favorite scene in, se- in season one, the, the team, and you, if you've seen it before, you, you'd probably say this is the best scene of the show. They go to an English pub, and in English pubs, you drink and you throw darts. And, th- and he gets into a high-stakes dart game with one of the villains, Rupert, in, in uh, he, he, uh, Rupert sees Ted basically f- make a few errant throws with his left hand and says, hey, Ted, why don't, why don't we wager here? Uh, and so he puts a wager on a dark game with Ted, and everybody's like, Ted, no, don't do it. And he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll, we'll, I'll play darts with you. And at that moment, Rupert pulls out uh, out of his pocket his own, his own personalized darts that he's been carrying around. He says, oh, I didn't realize that I had these on me. And, and there's an ooh and ah from the crowd because everybody realizes that Ted is in a, a ba- bad situation, to which then Ted replies, oh, and I didn't realize that I'm right-handed. <laughs> and so we get deeper into the darts game, um, and we get to this final soliloquy where Ted is losing. He needs to come up with a perfect combination of two triple 20s and a bullseye, a 50, on the last throw. And he's soliloquying as he is making his final throws. And this is such a brilliant um, screenwriting that happens right here. Now, Rupert, guys are underestimating my power. And for years, I never was a block. He's a little block. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman painted on the wall that said, 
Be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car, I'm driving to work. And all of a sudden it hits me. All them fellas used to belittle me. Not a single one of them were curious. You know, they probably had everything all figured out, so they judged everything. They judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. Mm-hmm. Questions like, have you played a lot of darts? Eh? All right, it took me a few minutes to figure out why is it that he says barbecue sauce at the end on the last throw? Anybody? Bullseye barbecue sauce. <laughs> That's what he, he's predicting his final throw, the bullseye. But I'm, the whole idea of be curious, not judgmental. Uh, it's such a great scene of illustrating the importance of being curious about others, about not letting first impressions be final impressions. And I just have to say, like, we've been blessed so blessed that God has brought a few like, spiritually curious people to our community <laughs> thus far. That, you know, I have such a tremendous respect for anyone who's actually curious to find out more about Christianity, um, to more about Jesus, about the Christian message, about a God who, we say God is personal. And anybody who, who wants to ask questions and just to get to know more about who God is, um, it happened to Lydia. And, you know, I know that that's the kind of person that I want to increasingly become, even at the age of 47, is become even more curious about others, about other stories, and about God himself. I mean, to not get to the point where you feel like, oh, I've, I've, I've got him figured out, because, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Before moving to the next profile, what really is cool about verse 15 she, she, she believes, the, the Lord opens her heart, she believes, she's baptized. And do you see what he says next in verse 15? I, I didn't put it up on the screen. She says to Paul, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. What does she mean by that? It's, she's not trying to run a bed and breakfast. She's not trying to go into the hotel industry. What is she doing? She's opening her house as a center of ministry at that point for Paul to be able to continue his ministry in the city of Philippi. So she goes from believer to baptized to ministry center all on the same day. It's really beautiful. It's the profile of our first Christian. Profile number two. You'd have to say that the slave girl is in many ways Lydia's polar opposite. You know, Lydia's wealthy. The slave girl is owned. The slave girl is at the very bottom of the social hierarchy. Now, even more, she's demon-possessed, or she's oppressed. She's completely out of her mind. In verse 16, it says that she had, quote, a spirit by which she predicted the future. But in the Greek, it says she literally had the spirit of Python. And what it means is they're referring back to the Greek mythology. Python was the serpent who stood, over, stood guard over the city of Delphi. 
And the great enemy in Greek mythology of Python was Apollo. And so there's this great battle between Apollo and Python. Apollo kills Python, kills Python at the, at the city of Delphi, and remakes his home. They, they basically remake, remake it into the oracle of Delphi. Or, am I pronoun- pronouncing it wrong? Is it Delphi? I don't know my, my Greek cities very well. But there, you know, you may remember from... Um, comparative religions, how the Oracle Delphi was, you'd have priests, priests and priestesses who would be there, and they could predict the future. They'd go into like a trance state, and they would begin to speak in all kinds of strange voices, some high, some low, and they would prophesy the future. So to say that she has the spirit of Python is, you know, drawing upon um, that, that story. If we were to put the slave girl in today's terms, she could be Somebody who's deep into the evil, into the occult, who's into dark stuff. Um, at the same time, she's owned by other people. So in another respect, she's like a prostitute who's on the streets, who's um, being pimped out. And you see how her, her masters respond when she loses her clairvoyant powers. Uh, they freak out and they apprehend Paul and Silas. And there's a riot that breaks out. The slave girl. Question, have you met her before? Have you met, you, you probably met Lydia before, successful female entrepreneur. Ha, have you met the slave girl before? Uh, she has tats on every square inch of her arms, tats on her face, maybe a pentagram. She's all pierced up. Who's more likely to become a Christian? The successful female entrepreneur or the, the, the gal who's been deep into the, the occult? If you my point would be, if you ever look at a person and say, ah, they would never become a Christian. They're not Christian material. I mean, as if you are. <laughs> as if any of us are. Like, if any of us become followers of Jesus, it's all because of a miracle. I mean, come on. <laughs> if we had to choose a hopeless case in the Bible, it would not be the slave girl. It'd probably be, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law who the, the people who seem to have all their life perfectly together and are fulfilling, you know, believing and obeying all of the commandments. I mean, that's maybe the hopeless case, not her. I mean, we've got, we got this. I don't know. Was this like American? Was this like Christian America? Like God helps those who help themselves. Where in the world did that come from? I mean, it's so not true. I mean, the truth is, the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves and have given up trying to pretend like they can help themselves. I mean, Christianity is always going to resonate with the people who find themselves defeated by life, um, either because they're at the bottom of the social hierarchy and they, and they are materially defeated, or they're upward in the social hierarchy and they kind of reached the top and realized at the top, the emperor has no clothes. And like the three idols of our world, money, sex, and, and uh, power, like they over they overpromise and underdeliver. And you, you, once you get them and get them in large measure, you find this doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Christianity is always going to resonate with people who find themselves defeated by life, either because they succeeded and were defeated or because they've lost and were defeated. 
And I think that's important for us to remember because we crave distraction. We'll get on our feed, Facebook or our Instagram and we'll start scrolling through and everybody on our feed appears to be smiling and successful and they're doing exciting activities and they're traveling to exotic places and they have well-adjusted children. And it's just easy to develop the impression that everybody, all my classmates, from high school, they're just all doing so well, and the baseline for marriage is just fairly blissful, and there's something wrong with you if you don't feel this way, or you're not experiencing this, like there's something uniquely wrong with you. But the reality is, of course, that it's all fake. You know, it's, it's all performative. Um, that in reality, if you could see behind the feed, you'd see everybody's heart is breaking, everybody's got problems like nobody nobody aces this life absolutely nobody aces this life and God helps those who finally come to their senses and realize that and and reach out to him you know asking for grace before moving to the final profile I do also find it interesting how in verse 17 she's think of the picture she's following Paul and Silas every day through the city, the slave girl, and she's shrieking at the top of her voice. She's screaming, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You realize what's going on here? The devil is discrediting the message of truth, the good news, by packaging it in such an obnoxious way. Like, that's what's happening. He's taking something that is true. These men are here to tell you the way of salvation, and is is packaging it in such a revolting way. Does that ever happen today? I mean, like, all the time, it feels like. There's so much cringe out there where people who are taking a good message, a message at least partially true, and they just package it in such a revolting and obnoxious way that nobody will give it a fair listening. Um, it's always been, my point is just simply to show you, that's always been one of the devil's best tactics. Um, it's nothing new. And then Paul, you notice how Paul responds to this in verse 18? Notice what he doesn't say, or what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say, you know, Paul was moved with compassion that the woman was so tormented. No! Verse 18 says, she kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed (laughs) that he turned around and said, said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, you know, knock it off, quit, um, come out of her. You know, it doesn't sound like a heart that was just brimming with Jesus-like compassion like the shepherd, because it wasn't. <laughs> because Paul, you know, Jesus was sinless, Paul was not. <laughs> and, you know, he gets ticked off, just like you and I do. Something that you can always appreciate about the Bible is how it'll show your, your characters, its main characters, in a definitely realistic light. From Peter to Paul to um, all the disciples, it does. Okay, that's profile number two, the second kind of person who becomes a Christian. Then thirdly and finally, Roman soldier. I didn't see any Roman soldier in the passage. Well, it just turns out that back then, if you were a retired Roman soldier, you would get a cushy civil service job. And Philippi was, apparently, it was a colony that was started for uh, retired Roman soldiers. And so most likely, you know, this guy gets the, the jailer job, which would be been a nice perk after retiring from the military. So most likely, the jailer in the story is a Roman soldier. Um, what do we know about this Roman soldier? We know that he is 
as mean as a snake. <laughs> um, you know, after the demonic spirit is cast out of the slave girl, she becomes a normal individual, and her masters are so furious because she was bringing in a lot of money for him, it ignites a citywide riot. It says that Paul and Silas were beaten with sticks, so they, are, they were severely flogged. They're oozing with bloody wounds. They get brought into the, the, the jail cell, just, you know, oozing with wounds, and instead of caring for their wounds, what does the jailer do? He basically tortures them even further. That's verse 24. It says that um, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if you've been to Disneyland, Disney World, you remember Liberty Square. There are the big old stocks that you can um, go, and here's a picture of some people in the stocks. Uh, Stick your head through, stick your arms through, very uncomfortable. These were not those kind of stocks, but these were actually stocks that you put your legs through. So the prisoners were chained to the, their feet were chained and basically stretched out sideways like this. So that's what it meant to to put them in the stocks. I, I read that it's extremely painful. Sounds like this would be extremely painful for a long period of time. If you've just been beaten and you're bloodied from a riot and now you're being, you know, stretched out, placed on the rack by the jailer, uh, kind of a bad guy, <laughs> a mean guy. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. If you read through the Psalms, you notice how often it refers to David singing through the watches of the night. The watches of the night were the times when the military guards were changed at at appointed hours. Um, and David, it seems like he's a man who struggles with insomnia. If you're like that, I'm like that. He has many sleepless nights, and he's tossing and he's turning, and his, his heart is filled with anxiety. And so he writes his psalms, it seems like. A lot of his psalms get written at night when he's singing through the watches of the night. We may read this story and get the false impression that Paul and Silas, because of their great faith in Jesus, are, you know, just singing praise songs out of the Christian Top 40 to Jesus in the middle of the night? Probably not. They're probably singing at midnight because they're just, they're struggling. And like, they're, they're hurting. They're wondering, like, Lord, is this going to be the end of us? We were just beaten. We're now being tortured. Um, they're singing their troubled, sorrowful songs to God in the middle of the night. I mean, they had recently seen what happened to Stephen when Stephen was martyred. The jailer and his fellow prisoners, they're listening to the singing all through the night. And now now we're back at the beginning of the sermon, which is, Oh, brother, where art thou? There's an earthquake, the mysterious, miraculous earthquake. The prison doors fly open. Uh, the, The chains on the prisoners, they fall off. So this is probably something that an angel has miraculously done. He's shaken the foundation of the city of Philippi. And the jailer realizes that uh, the prisoners are going to run away, and he pulls out a knife to impale himself because he realizes that if I lose all the prisoners, that's the, the end of my life. And he's, you can almost feel the tension as he pulls the knife out, and he's about to do the Hamlet knife into the, to the heart when he hears Paul cry out to him, don't do it! We're still here! Instead of like scurrying like cockroaches when the lights come out, every prisoner stays put. Why? I think it's because Paul kept them there. Like, we're all here. It's okay. Like, Paul's speaking for the group. 
Um, Had the prisoners escaped, the jailer was good as dead. Um, But what's happening is simply this, that he responds to the jailer's evil with good. Do not repay evil with evil. Repay evil with good, with kindness. Like, the jailer treated Paul and Silas with cruelty, and they treated him the way Jesus treats us, you know, with kindness. Um, Jesus Christ, when he was dying on the cross, he prayed for the men who were, who were killing him. Um, he prayed for their forgiveness. And he, dies, he dies for his enemies. Who's ever heard of a story where the hero dies for the villain? That's the Christian story. <laughs> That's the story of the gospel. And the jailer, understandably, had never seen anything like this before. He had never seen kindness like this before. So hard, hardened man, mean as a snake. Verse 29, he calls for the lights, and then he rushes in, and he falls trembling before Paul and Silas. Uh, And he brings them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This blue-collar, gruff man is down on his knees in front of Paul. Um, the chip of his sh- the chip on his shoulder is gone, and Paul says, "All you got to do is believe." That's the message: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As bad as you are, <laughs> believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Not only you, but the message is for your whole family, and that's the profile of the third Christian. I'm out of time. I just have two very quick observations, and then we'll be done. Um, the first is this. The gospel is radically flexible in approach and methodology. You know, the good news comes to people in lots of different forms and, and ways. It, it seems like it's tailor-made by God to, for each person wherever they are at. It's, it's not a canned rehearsal, right? The gospel is not memorize you know, the four spiritual laws or, or come up with the Kennedy question, if you were to die tonight, and God stood before God, and God asked, why should I let you into heaven? What is, like, no, how did it come to Lydia? Okay, well, it came to Lydia in a Bible study and prayer meeting. It came to Lydia, and we'll sit down, and we'll have maybe a a Bible-themed, rational discourse together. But on the other hand, how did it come to the slave girl? Well, it came to the slave girl in a power encounter, like in an exorcism. I I would love to perform an exorcism. I've never done that before. I, I know, I've heard of people doing it. I, I hear of places in the world where God does like powerful things like that, and I hope he'll do some more powerful things like that in our part of the world. Um, but I do think that even, even if it's not miraculous, there are times when God will come to a person powerfully, undeniably, and we just have to have our eyes open looking for when that happens in, in a burst of power. And then finally, how did the gospel come to the jailer? It came to the jailer in the form of he was their enemy and they were not his in a, in a countercultural love and kindness. He was saved by sheer kindness when Paul organizes the prisoners and keeps them from doing the cockroach prisoner scurry thing. So yes, the gospel, I just hope you never feel the pressure to, to have it canned, um, but respond according to the person that is in front of you. And then secondly, I I do believe that the gospel is the greatest thing in the world to bring all sorts of people together. Can you imagine what church at Lydia's house looked like um, that next Sunday? I mean, she opens her home. It's got to be the first meeting place of the church in Philippi. 
And who walks in uh, to her, her very nice, very rich, well-manicured home? Uh, you, you've got a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and then you've got a Roman centurion and his family. Uh, I mean, talk about more opposite. You can't find more opposite. And, and Lydia, I mean, she's at the top of the economic spectrum. The slave girl's at the bottom. The, the jailer's in the middle. Um, and then you got the temperament spectrum. You got the slave girl who's, I don't know exactly what her temperament was, but before she was formerly, you know, demon-possessed, she was pretty crazy. And the jailer, I mean, he's gruff, he's, he's mean. And, and Lydia, she's thoughtful and she's seeking. The gospel is great. It's the most unifying power on, face, on the face of planet Earth. It brings all kinds of people together. And that's what the early church was. That's what I wanted you to see, is profiles of three early Christians. Uh, a group of people where the prisoners don't run, that stand out because they just don't act the way the rest of the world does. Um, you know, by God's grace, we're going to have more and more churches that uh, are planted in the city of Phoenix and, you know, take on those properties and those characteristics over the next decade and decades. And, you know, if the Lord wills, uh, you know, we'll grow and flourish and be one of those and, and even plant others that are that way too. Amen.